Christina. It'd be awesome to have that one. That sounds good. Well, if you would, open your Bibles to what, what is commonly referred to as the first letter of John, or 1 John, first epistle of John. Uh, and if you would, uh, <clears throat> turn there with me this morning, please. Um, key word for the day. Keyword, kids, all those online, anyone. The key word for, the, for today is beginning. Um, no, it is not because uh, the Rays had a beginning on Thursday in the 6th, although that was pretty amazing. How about those Rays? Um, it has nothing to do with that. It, I don't know why my mind goes there, but uh, um, it, it's beginning. So, um, you know, only, and the kids won't even get that. That's the funny part of it, you know. It won't even get it. But um, we're starting a series in First John. Last week we started what we're calling an occasional series uh, on the church, uh, a faithful gospel witness. And you'll recognize that as our, uh, uh, what's the word we use for that? Peter, you used it last week, wherever you are. But uh, vision statement or mission statement, mission statement. That's the word we use for it. I, I get all these things mixed up. But we also have, Something you'll hear a lot around here said, which is love the gospel, live the gospel, advance the gospel. And these, both of these series are really designed to uh, remind us of our foundations and who we are as a church and, 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 and what our mission is, how we're going to accomplish it. And years and years ago, we did a series in First John. It was actually out of that series that, that the, the uh, expression that you'll hear a lot around here, we call it our value statement, I think, online is, Love the gospel, live the gospel, advance the gospel. And so uh, we'll be looking at that uh, first, John. There's a lot of interaction between the two series, which will become evident, I think, as we go through them at times. Uh, but if you would, join me. The title of this series, Light, Life, Love, the Gospel We Heard from Him. And the subtitle for this particular message is That Which Was From the Beginning. So, um, yes, I just said it, kids. So there, there you go. Uh, read with me, beginning in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, this message, which is this message, which John, as a faithful witness of that message, is bringing to us, uh, Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts, that we too, by the Spirit, would see with that second level of seeing, by faith, the Savior, and come to know him more and more, both today and throughout this series, in Jesus' name, amen. When most believers answer the question, what is the gospel, we default to Paul's way of communicating it. Maybe, maybe this is because 
Paul's letters are front-ended in our New Testament. I mean, we start with, you know, Romans and then First and Second Corinthians. And we get all the way through Paul's epistles, and there's quite a few of them, right? There's a lot of them before we get to the others. And so we have a tendency to, to focus there. So not only are they front-ended, as I note, there's more of them than there are of the others, and, and, and even put together, much less by any one author. And they're a favorite. They're a favorite of the church. And, and while that's always been the case, I think it's even more so the case post-Reformation that they're a favorite of the church. Now, this isn't a bad thing, but Jesus didn't just pick one apostle. John shows us not a different gospel, but a different way of expressing the gospel, a different way of showing how it applies to life. It's the gospel that he would have shared in the community where he was an elder uh, usually understood to be Ephesus. Traditionally, 1 John or 1 John, depending on how you want to refer to it, it's often called John's first epistle or letter. Now, if you, by epistle we mean letter, that's probably not the most accurate term. If by epistle we mean written communication, then it applies. And uh, if you look at this, it's really not a letter. It, there's no greeting. There's no signing off. It's It's really something that, that he's written for the purpose of being read. In actuality, uh, most scholars would believe that at least Second John, if not Second and Third John, were cover letters sent with this to begin with. So the three of them, we have them together in our Bibles, were probably together when they were first delivered. And, and so they, they would have been delivered that way. And so they serve very well. You'll note the, the override, you know, overlapping themes between the three letters uh, very likely. Uh, that they are were, were sent together, and they certainly speak about uh, the same kinds of things to the same community. But the letters, second and third, John, are certainly more personal, and they have all the elements of a letter. Like Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, we call it, that, that most scholars think was a sermon that was written out. I think First John is a, a sermon. It's a shorter one. Uh, probably was a pandemic going on at the time and live streaming, and they had to kind of work with that. I, I don't know. But, but it's a little bit shorter, obviously, than, than Hebrews. In today's way of speaking, you can also be said that, that First John is, is John's group study guide to go along with his gospel. Okay? You know how people write a book and it sells well, so then they have to write a study guide to go with it, right? Well, John's gospel probably wasn't selling all that well, given that they didn't sell it, but... There was a need for people to understand more clearly the kinds of things he's talking about. And so he's coming at it a different way, but it's got a lot of the same truths in it. Um, He's summarizing the essential truths of the apostolic gospel um, and its claim on our lives. John has not only borne testimony to what he saw in John's gospel, he's now bearing testimony in this written message to us. So verses 1 through 3 of our four verses that we read earlier in the original text are one sentence, one long convoluted sentence, to say the least. And we'll unravel those uh, and verse 4 under three headings. Uh, They are from the beginning of time, from the beginning of the gospel, and for the beginning of koinonia. And I know you might be thinking, I don't know what koinonia is. That's okay. We'll get to that shortly. From the beginning of time. Of time, let's begin there, um, and and that really we're going to just look at that first uh, phrase in uh, verse one. That which was from the beginning. 
Now, this is a very unusual way to begin anything. Um, Take, for example, if I were to say to you, the the person with the green hat is the one who I saw at the counter. That that makes sense. I mean, you may not understand why I'm telling you this, but you can understand the sentence. But wouldn't it be odd if I just started the sentence? Who I saw at the counter did such and such and such and such and such and such. I mean, what do you mean, who I saw at the counter? What about who I saw? I mean, there's something missing if I just start, oh, who I saw at the counter did that. It it doesn't quite make sense. And that's what John's doing here. It's the only book in Scripture that begins with a relative clause, that which, or you could say what was from the beginning or uh, that kind of thing. Maybe John wants the object of his proclamation, that which he is proclaiming, Jesus, to come first in our thoughts and minds. Maybe it's because nothing can come before that which was from the beginning. So if that which was from the beginning, well, it has to be at the beginning because nothing was before that which was at the beginning. I don't know exactly his rhetorical point. Could be those, could be both of them. One of them could be something else. But John does this very unusual thing. And from the context, we glean that the what or the that which that is from the beginning is the word of God, the word of life that is expressed in these three verses. It's life itself, the life of the coming age or the eternal life as it reads in English. We'll talk about that when we get there. It is Jesus. He is the one which was from the beginning that is being spoken about. But this phrase, from the beginning, is, it's really an interesting expression. From the beginning. The similarities to the introduction of John's gospel... Uh, would not be missed by even a casual reader of the New Testament. If they've read John's gospel at least once and they go over and read this, they'll go, boy, there's something similar about the beginning of his gospel and the beginning of uh, this uh, writing, this epistle, if you will, uh, 1 John. But the exact phrasing is actually quite different. John 1, verse 1 through 4, reads this way, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. And without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. Of course, that light, uh, life was the light of men, picks up on verse 5, where we'll be next week. God is light. Life was the light of men. uh, Or of all uh, all mankind, as this translation reads. And the, the, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the beginning was the word it began. It's, it's a clear allusion to Genesis 1-1 that begins, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John in his gospel is telling us that Jesus was in the beginning with the Father creating all that has been made. And John in this letter, if you will, this epistle, this written sermon, wants us to understand that the beginning of the gospel has its origins in the one who created all things in the beginning. That this gospel is no invention of humanity. If you go to Matthew's gospel, it says the beginning of the gospel, but then it goes on to say, you know, who was born of, Jesus born of, born of, born of, and it gets all the way back to Abraham. And you go to Mark, he goes to Isaiah. This, uh, when John's introduced, this is the one who was spoken about in the prophet Isaiah. All the gospels anchor themselves in, the, in, in Abraham's covenant, in the Old Testament prophecy, But then you get to John, "Ah, we're just going all the way. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I'll just bypass all of that. We're going to go right to the start. However, in 1 John, I, I do think he wants us to pick up on that because he's, he's incorporating it, this beginning that was the beginning of time into this beginning that's the beginning of the gospel. And he speaks about both of these throughout this sermon. Here, it does not say in the beginning in 1 John. It says from the beginning, that which was from the beginning. Now, might there be any significance in that detail? I think likely there is. We find that this less common expression used in the Old Testament and other Jewish writings as well would have been familiar to John's audience. For instance, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, a, a verse that's familiar to us probably because of the Christmas story, um, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans clans of Judah, out of you will come uh, come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old. Or literally, the way the, the Greek Old Testament would read, whose origins are from the beginning of eternal days. From the beginning, the same expression we have in 1 John. In Habakkuk uh, chapter 1, verse 12, are you not from everlasting? And again, the Greek Old Testament, are you not from the beginning? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. In other words, that which was from the beginning is that which is everlasting. The, The gospel has its roots in one who is everlasting to everlasting. And note the connection that because of this we shall not die. And in our text, eternal life is connected to this one that is from the beginning. Athanasius, in the 4th century, contemplating the incarnation in in his book on the incarnation, he writes that if anyone should wish to expound on the incarnation he's referring to, he he would be like those who gaze at the expanse of the sea and wish to count its waves. His point being that one could never perceive the whole. To to contemplate the one who is from the beginning, like counting those waves of the sea, is to contemplate an endless mystery. We'll never fully exhaust it. But there is more. Hey, God bless you. God bless you. A popular book that Jewish readers would have been familiar with, maybe like, Readers, Christians would be familiar with church history books. Uh, popular book, the, the, the Wisdom of Solomon, wasn't considered a scripture, but was considered historic and, and valuable. Um, Wisdom of Solomon in 1413 says, Idols did not exist from the beginning, nor will they last forever. Idols did not exist from the beginning. That which was from the beginning. If... John intended a contrast between Jesus as the God who was, uh, he was proclaiming and a contrast with that and the idols of the nations. Then, let me offer to you, that the last line of this sermon in 1 John corresponds to the first line. That which was from the beginning, i.e. not an idol. The last line, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Which, if you're going through this letter and missed the point, of that which was from the beginning has something to do with idolatry in contrast, you get to the end and you go, where'd that come from? Like, that's out of left field because it doesn't seem to talk about idolatry. But when you recognize maybe that's bookending the whole sermon, maybe the whole sermon's about idolatry versus not idolatry. And that puts a whole nother spin in our understanding of it and a way to 
frame it. John may well be saying, I am not proclaiming some new God among you, but that which was from eternity and has appeared to us. Athanasius understood this relationship between the incarnation of Jesus and how it stands in opposition to idolatry. He understood that. C.S. Lewis, in his introduction to On the Incarnation by Athanasius, writes the following. He says, Athanasius begins his exposition of the word of the cross, the gospel, with the origin of idolatry. You're going to talk about the gospel. I begin with the origin of idolatry. That doesn't seem to be where we would go. But he emphasizes, according to C.S. Lewis, and I think rightly so, that idolatry is not from the beginning. That is, it is not a proper characteristic of created existence, but is rather a deviation from the right relationship between God and creation. Hence, Athanasius wrote first against the Gentiles, which was really a treatise against idolatry, and then he immediately follows that with on the incarnation, because that for him got to the core heart of the gospel. The beginning of the gospel has its foundation in the creator God who was from the beginning incarnate in Jesus. He is the true God and eternal life. So we've covered from the beginning of time, and these are our, our headings for our, our, our message today, from the beginning of time, that's the first one, from the beginning of the gospel. And that's where we are in the second one um, as we get there, from the beginning of the gospel. And pick up with me after that first phrase in verse 1, which we have heard, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, we've actually felt. This we proclaim concerning the word of life, The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. The gospel is no private revelation. There are a variety of meanings one could assign to John's use of the pronoun we. Who's we? We who? Who's writing it? Well, John's writing it. But why does he say we? We. More than one of those are possible, but minimally, it certainly seems that he is referring to those eyewitnesses, the apostolic community of which he was a part. Plenty of people are ready to tell you about their experiences, but it's important to remember that the apostolic testimony, what they bore witness to, was something they all heard, they all saw, they all looked at, and they all felt. They all touched. This is no dream, it's no psychotic episode. You can't get a whole group of people to have the same dream or the same psychotic episode. These were people who were not naturally given to ecstatic experiences. John, for instance, was a fisherman, not that kind of guy. John's choice of verbs is intriguing. That which we heard, saw, looked at, touched, or felt. The the gospel, the message about Jesus Christ, is rooted in his actual humanity, his place in human history, and the fact that he chose witnesses to explain the true significance of his life, death, and resurrection. The gospel 
of Jesus Christ is the gospel which the apostles heard in Jesus' presence and passed down to us. To the degree that we veer away from the message delivered by those apostles, we veer away from the person of Jesus Christ. It is not merely the fact that they heard, saw, and touched Jesus. After all, the Pharisees heard Jesus. The Pharisees saw some of the miracles Jesus did. Just as the apostles, but they did not perceive correctly what was going on. John hints at this second level of seen, I would call it, if you will, by I think by using two different verbs that could either, either one be translated as saw, right in a row. That we saw with our eyes that we looked at. There are two different words, and so the English is trying to mirror that, but you can notice you can say, we looked at it, we saw it. Same, same thing. It means the exact same thing, and that's what he's doing here. I mean, You can't necessarily assign that the second one has some deeper meaning, not on its own, but sitting next to the first one, it hints to the fact. And then when you recognize John's gospel, John's gospel has, uh, as many people will tell you, seven signs or eight signs or some debate about that, unimportant. But he, 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 he has signs wherein he tells what happened and he describes the miracle that's in, uh, talked about. And... Yet, then he goes on to either clearly state or hint at what the meaning behind it is. So you have to see the miracles on two levels. Level one is what you see. It's what the Pharisees would have seen. It's what anyone would see. Level two is what it means. And and so John, in in, in this uh, sermon that we're receiving from him, is telling us uh, the core essence of the gospel. What did it mean? How does it impact us? And And so that's what he's doing here as well. John and the apostles saw not only the human Jesus, but in Jesus, the one who was from the beginning. Though John is an eyewitness, he refers to Jesus in categories, as one commentator put it, that go beyond what one could have known about Jesus from mere physical observation with phrases such as what was from the beginning and the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Then he gets to the controlling verb of this long convoluted sentence. We proclaim. That which was from the beginning. That which we heard. That, was it. that, that, that. We proclaim. In verse 3. What is it that John and the apostles proclaim? They proclaim the one who is from the beginning. They proclaim the one they have heard and seen and put their hands on. They proclaim the life of the coming age, which was evident manifest in Jesus Christ. They proclaim Jesus. John proclaimed the same message as Paul, just in his own way. In Colossians 1.28, Paul declares, Christ is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature. In Christ. The gospel is Jesus. When we say love the gospel, we are saying love the central character in the gospel story, Jesus Christ. Sometimes we say love the story. The story, capital S, is the gospel. The proclamation, the good proclamation, if you will, the good story. 
the best story there is. It's the story of what God is doing to redeem humanity. We love it. When we say that, we're not just loving some content that we refer to that's a story. No, we're loving the central character in the story, Jesus Christ. That's what we mean by love the gospel, because the gospel is ultimately a person and not just words or a particular story. It's the, one, the person in whom all that becomes true. Ultimately, Jesus is the content of what we proclaim. Jesus is the manifestation of the life of the coming age, the manifestation of, as the English translations say, eternal life, which is a fine translation at one level, but it gives the impression that John's message was about how people could go to heaven. That which was from the beginning, this message about how you can get to heaven, no, no, that's, that's, not, that's not what that's about. That which was from the beginning, this eternal life, in him was life. And that life was the light of men, in, in him was life. He's the one who breathed into this clay molding that was made in Genesis chapter 2, the breath of life. And Adam became a living soul. Well, how, how could he breathe into him? Because life was in him to do that with. Go make yourself a little mud doll and try breathing into it. Life, see what you get. You don't get anywhere. Because in you is not life, not naturally, not in your own self, not sourced in you. In him was life. And the only way it gets in us is through him. Thanks be to God. The words are, I think, better translated, the life of the age to come. Well, that's a very literal translation, number one, but I think it's a better way to think of it, or the coming, the life of the coming age, the age to come or the coming age. In other words, the age to come was the one that was the Messiah was to usher in, this life where everything would be transformed, not just how long you live, but everything about your life would be transformed. There were, I mean, you read the descriptions in the prophets, and the lion lays down with the lamb, and, and you have all these glorious pictures of what life would look like, and, and nobody's hungry, and everybody's well. It, it's about the quality of life. There's no injustice. Everybody has peace. There's no war. It's about the quality of life. That's eternal life. The life of the age to come. But you get to have it now. That life of the age to come was manifest in the person, Jesus Christ. It's first about quality or kind of life, and secondly, about length of life. It is what John refers to in John 10.10, life in that more abundantly. Or maybe better read, that you may have life and have it extraordinarily. This is an amazing quality of life. The quality of life is related to the, the, this manner of life that it produces in us. This quality of life changes how we live. We've explored what was from the beginning and what we heard, saw, and felt. And now John is going to tell us why the apostles proclaimed it. Why the apostles proclaimed it. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. We proclaim to you what we have, and this is, by the way, it's under the heading the begin, for the beginning of Koinonia. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship or Koinonia with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Here John gets to what some preachers would call the so what question. 
every homiletics class begins with the prof standing at the front of the room and describing the scene where this pastor gets up to preach. And when he's done with his sermon, somebody in the back of the room says, so what? In other words, why does it matter? And so many pastors talk about the so what question. Personally, I think it's disrespectful to God's word uh, to ask that question. Um, I mean, for instance, when, when somebody expounds God's word and then asks, so what? Um, I'd re- much rather ask the question, what claim does this have on my life? I think it's a fair question. I mean, there's always this built-in claim for God's word being expounded. It's called doxology, worship. In other words, the, the truth of the first two verses, even if John had not given us a so what, the truth of the two verses we've just covered ought to cause us to worship. And any time God's word is expounded, the so what should be obvious, fall down and worship. If nothing else is obvious, that should be obvious. We should stand in awe of God. And I think also John's first two verses would draw us in to plant a desire in us to hear what John says and compare it to how we believe. If this is the gospel that John proclaimed, hey, how's my gospel doing in comparison to that? For those of you that are new to the faith, you're young in the Lord, good news for you. You get to build on the foundation of the apostolic gospel right from the beginning. A lot of people are in this five or ten years before they realize You know, that stuff they've been telling me doesn't really quite align. I need to get straightened out on a number of issues. That was my story. Boy, did I have some stuff to get straightened out. And I had been pastoring for eight years at the time. (laughs) Figured it out. Like, whoa, there's a serious problem here with my own doctrine. My gospel wasn't his gospel. We should want to make our version of the gospel pass the test compared with John's the gospel that was passed down to us. But, but John spells out another why it matters, an, another claim on our life, which might not be so obvious to us, so he wants to drive our attention toward it. So that you may have fellowship with us, and when that happens, by the way, it will make our joy complete. Now, to be honest with you, sometimes I read that and I think to myself, what in the world does that mean? I mean, so that you may have fellowship with us and that will make our joy complete. Our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. What's he, what's he driving at? I mean, first we have to define fellowship. Uh, that word can refer to a potluck dinner in Christian circles, uh, to the snacks at the beginning or the end of our community group meetings, or for some of you, the groups, just the whole time that you're having community group, right? It's Get up and get, and some of you are thinking, I want to go to that group. Yeah, you know, that's just right. For some, it's the name of a space uh, that, that's given to a space uh, that, you know, like where our multi-purpose room is. I mean, I guess that's where we gather sometimes to eat, so that's the fellowship hall, you know. And so, nothing wrong with the term, but the point is that we associate fellowship not with the singing, not with the preaching, not with these other aspects of our church life, We associate the fellowship with these other activities. And if you think about it, John's idea of fellowship doesn't fit our idea of fellowship. Because John thinks that if he proclaims a message to you, it will enable you to have this fellowship. That that there's some connection between receiving a particular message and experiencing 
koinonia, the, the word for fellowship there. So, so what is this word koinonia mean? The uh, BDAG's lexicon, probably the best one out there. It, it describes the word uh, koinonia as this, close association involving mutual interest and sharing. Association, communion, fellowship, close relationship. At, at the time when our New Testaments were written, when John was writing this, uh, koinonia was a favored way of describing the marriage relationship, the closest relationship between two human beings. So it was a very close, intimate relationship. Koinonia is a shared life. I mean, my wife and I, we've been together, well, married 39 plus years and, and to knowing each other, I mean, dating and all that over 40 years already. We have a very closely intertwined life. I mean, like, we think alike. We know what each other is thinking. We, we know what's, I mean, we, we, know our ha- we know each other inside out. There's a close association would be to say the least. Well, likewise here, there is this close association that comes about. Koinonia is the shared life, a closeness in life, a knowing and being known. John, along with all those in the apostolic community, have a closeness and experience of a shared life that he wants all the recipients of his letter to have. No no doubt some already did. And the only way that it could be had is through the message which John is writing about. This fellowship or koinonia is created by our being joined to the Father and the Son. We have a shared life because we share in the life of Jesus. John wants the churches to know this Jesus, the one the apostles experienced, in order that they too might share in this life of the coming age, both now and forever. You can't experience the life of the coming age alone. That that would be the point that we should note here. You can't experience it alone. It's experienced in fellowship. Since it was with the Father and His Son, this life has never been experienced in isolation by anyone, including God. Because only God in the Trinity, who has He has always existed, could experience and be that eternal life. It never will be experienced in isolation. The very nature of this life of the coming age is communal. The very nature of the life of the coming age is communal. It involves communion with the Father, the Son, and the children of God, as we'll find out throughout this sermon, through the message about Jesus. In the course of 1 John, this shared life will be described more fully. And then we get to the question of whose joy will be made complete, because you might notice in your margin that it's our joy will be made complete, or maybe some transcripts, your joy will be made complete. Change of one letter in Greek, and... and You know, you could go. You could you could go either way. You know, it's ours the most likely uh, scenario. But think about it this way: What parent can have their joy complete when their children's joy is not complete? So when 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 John says, "So that our joy may be complete," it includes that their joy would be complete because that's the only way that his joy could be complete. And so the hour is yes, all of us apostles, all of us in in the community that have it now. With you, and, and by the way, it's yours too. It's our joy may be complete. John's opening, these first four verses of this sermon, uh, his sermon, not my sermon, 
His opening invites us to participate in the shared life of the coming age now, which begins and can only begin with adherence to the teaching about Jesus Christ given by those who have the authority to speak it, the apostolic witness. In John 17, Jesus prayed not just for the apostles, but for those who would believe through their word. To be a Christian today, one must believe through the apostles' words. I wasn't with Jesus. You weren't with Jesus People's books you buy today weren't with Jesus, unless it's a Bible that you're buying. They, but these apostles were chosen to deliver the message. When the church began, we read about last week's message in the text for our other series, Acts 2, 42 through 47, the Church of Faithful Gospel Witness, there we saw that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, koinonia, John raises these first two things that the church was devoted to in Acts in his introduction to his letter. The church today must remain devoted to these and everything else in those lists. If we want to have fellowship with the Father and with the Son, we must do so through the gospel. But the gospel, which is the message mediated to us by the apostles. And finally, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and cost of discipleship writes the following. He says, Apostles are those chosen by God to witness to the facts of the revelation in Jesus Christ. They have lived in bodily community with Jesus. They have seen the one who became incarnate, was crucified, and is risen. They physically touched his body with their hands. They are the witnesses from whom... Uh, witnesses whom God the Holy Spirit uses as instruments to proclaim His Word. The apostles' preaching is the witness to the physical event of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. Thus, it is the word of the apostles which makes us one with the earliest church community. So we not only have fellowship with each other when we have fellowship with Jesus Christ, we have fellowship with John, the apostolic community, the early church, and the church throughout the ages between then and now, we live and dwell in the communion of the saints through Jesus Christ. Ours is a historic faith that reaches back to the one who was from of old and from everlasting. Are you experiencing the life of the coming age? How has it changed you? How has it impacted you? Have you experienced this koinonia, this fellowship, this shared life, this close association with Christ and the community founded on the message of the apostles called the church? That closeness with God and others in which you, are, which you know and are known. Have you experienced that? If not, let me urge you to seek out Jesus Christ, to, to talk with one of Uh, our church leaders or somebody that's sitting by you and just ask them to talk to them about this and and ask if they can bring you to one of the elders or one of our uh, deacons or community group leaders. Maybe you have experienced this fellowship, this communion, this life, but you've drifted. John is writing that you might return. Press into the truths that John is proclaiming, which we will walk through in this series, but keep pressing in that you might experience this koinonia again, because in that we find a quality of life that is transformative for our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise for your word. We give you thanks for the word that was delivered to us by the apostles, has been protected for us and kept by by people laying down their lives for it, that we would receive it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.